I've often quoted as saying I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the 2,000 people on the faculty of Harvard University. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. They share our beliefs, our convictions, our hopes, and our dreams. These are the conservatives of the heart. They are our people. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI. Educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI, and I'm your host, James Davenport. Unfortunately, my co-host, Johnny Burka, can't be with us today, but nonetheless, I am excited to welcome Senior Research Fellow at the Acton Institute, Michael Matheson-Miller. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, James. Good to be here with you. Before we get to today's listener question, I wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who has written a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you may be listening. For those of you who have not had the chance to review the show yet, we would appreciate it if you took a few minutes to rate and review Conservative Conversations. This will help us reach more listeners with the important thinkers and ideas we are discussing here. Moreover, if there are any topics or guests you want to hear from, please feel free to shoot us an email with questions, requests, suggestions, etc., at podcasts at isi.org. All right, now for our listener question this week, Michaela asks, how can young professionals invest in their community while career developments might pull them away from it? What do you think about that, Michael? That's a good question. I mean, I think that's a, a constant challenge, but wherever you are in your community, you can somehow be involved. So be involved in your church, uh, find a, maybe a local charity or a group to be involved in. I mean, I think it's, it's, I mean, it's a kind of constant challenge. I also think, you know, it depends on where you, what, what stage you are in your career, you know? So sometimes if you have a, um, small children and you're also working, you've, you've got, you've got your, your, you're already doing the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, uh, every single day <laughs> taking care of people. So, I mean, it kind of depends, but I think, I think that it's, it's a good question. I think, but I do think it's important. I mean, you know, they're, whether depending on the person's age, they're like, you know, youth groups where people are involved in, uh, ministries, uh, to, to help those in need. But I think it's essential to, to get involved early and, and remain involved in your community because, uh, one, it's just good to do that. And two, it, it also helps with human flourishing and with your own happiness. So I think a good question yeah. and you should do it. Get involved. Yeah, I agree with that. One, one thing I would add to that. I think a lot of times people, um, have this sort of localist impulse and they feel like they have to defer career development in order to stay in a particular place rather than invest in any particular place that they might find themselves. How do you, have you, I mean, have you experienced that tension? How do you, uh, how do you, what would you be your advice for managing that? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I don't, I mean, so it's kind of funny because my wife and I, we moved around a lot. I moved, I lived in Japan before I was married. I lived in Japan, lived in Europe and was moving around. And then we got married and she had lived around a lot with, moved around with her family and her parents were really quite amazing. And just like whatever they would get to a community and get involved in the church and in various things. And they were very good at that. I think the two of us, we took a little longer to, to get involved and we lived in Nicaragua for three years. And there, of course, there's opportunities to be involved in, in the, we were teaching it, I was teaching at Ave Maria college there and there were opportunities to get involved and, and do things with the, with the, with the students and with the university locally, not, not so much, but you could at least engage in, in helping people who needed help. Uh, when we moved to Michigan, uh, we've been here almost 16 years and we, we kind of make fun of each other because we're like, okay, we live here. Like 
we live here now and we're almost this sense of the career like okay we'll be here three years okay we'll be here five we'll be here more and and we're like when are we going to be gone and what are we going to do and i think one thing i've learned from several people um i have, I have a sister-in-law who, who's really good at this her, her husband's a military and was constantly moving and just kind of right when you get there get involved do things right away and don't wait for the perfect situation and i also make a joke you know i'm a total localist all my children wherever i have been lived have been born locally, right? No matter where you are, you're local. So, uh, so that's, I mean, and I like the localist impulse. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think it's good. I'm, we're going to talk about the Tocqueville option and Robert Nisbet and localism and all the stuff I like, but, but yeah, I, I think it's a good, I think my, I would say my error would, would, was I'm waiting for the time to be involved. Just do, do look for the opportunities around you and do it right away. Um, without being like, you know, ideologically activist or anything. I'm just saying being involved in things, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of needs. And so I think your point is don't, you don't have to be in your permanent place to do that. You can do it wherever you are. And then you develop the habits of doing that because it is actually a, a practice of, 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 of expertise and virtue. So yeah, absolutely. I, don't know I agree. Helpful, but. Yeah, I, I think so. Thank you for the question, Michaela. And for our listeners, if you'd like to submit a question for the next episode, just shoot us an email at podcast.isi.org. Or you can uh, tweet tweet to us or DM us on social media. We are at ISI. So now for our books of the week, Michael, what are you reading? Oh, golly. I'm <laughs> ADD. So Thomas Aquinas, you know, he has a virtue of studiousness. And then the, the contrary, like the vice is curiositas, like curiosity. Um, and so you, instead of like focusing, you know, you just are like always looking around. So um, that's probably my one of, one of my many... Uh, uh, vices, but um, so I'm reading a couple of things. I'm reading uh, Carter Sneed's book. Um, oh, what okay. it means yeah. to be human. So I'm going to interview him actually this week. So I'm reading that. Um, I'm uh, reading a couple of books on technology. Uh, Fred Turner has written a book called um, "From Counterculture to Cyberculture," which is really interesting. So um, uh, let's see. I'm I'm reading a Louis Lamore book, which is fun. I've just discovered Louis Lamore. I've been reading a number of his books. Um, uh, um, I'm reading a couple of books and other books on technology, a book called artificial unintelligence by Meredith Broussard and another book called the myth of AI. Um, I think it's, it's it comes to the name, it doesn't come to me, it'll come to me, but, and, um, uh, let's see, um, and some children's books to the children. And then I just read a really good book called breath on breathing by James Nestor. It's fantastic. It's super interesting. Um, and, uh, also, yeah, I'm also starting some Marshall McLuhan on understanding media. So a lot of technology stuff I'm reading. And I just, I think I told you, I just finished a little booklet, um, called digital pandemic. So it's coming out soon. Um, it's being published by this group called new founding, uh, it's connected uh, to that that's coming out. So I can get you some, uh, some information on that when it comes out, should be out pretty soon, but it's eight steps to protect your family from surveillance, capitalism, cancel culture, and this data intrusion that's going on right now. So. Wow. Well, that's that's certainly um, an exciting topic. And we need uh, we need to be thinking more seriously about that for sure right now. Yeah. And then I and it does actually overlap a little bit because I do talk about Tocqueville in that. Oh, really? Well, yeah, I think and we, we can go into it later. But I think part of the part of my my argument is we do live in digital technology in a world of digital technology. And so uh, not too long ago, I was at, I, I was at a, an Amish family's house. They invited us for dinner. And uh, it was really great. And, and we had a lot of good theology. I'm Catholic, but we had all these great theological discussions and overlap and talked about uh, the book of Tobit, which is in the Deuterocanonical text that's part of the Catholic um, 
Oh, very cool. Uh, Scripture, but also that they read at their weddings. It's really, it's great. But anyway, you know, I was thinking, well, they're pretty much opted out right, of digital technology or completely. And, and some people can, you can get off the grid and you can make a decision to do that. But for most of us, it's really just not an option, right? With our work and our life and um, children and, and children in sports, when they sign up for this app, you know, it's always this, this. So, so, so the question is, okay, so how can we then, if we're going to use digital technology, can we use digital technology in a better way? Um, and right now the dominant models of technology, big tech, you know, it's based on a lot of, of, I think, anthropological errors, right? Like what it means to be a human person, what it means to engage in commerce. Uh, you see a lot of sexual anarchism around it. And it's this kind of centralized vision of the Google vision of the world. Um, and we've kind of equated digital technology with this centralized vision of the world, which is we'll give you free stuff, but we'll take your data on the backside. And I think that that has been, it's a real problem. And so part of what I'm saying is like, it's not a perfect, but we can start like, don't use free email. Always pay for your email, right? It's not perfect. It doesn't mean your data can't be taken, but now you're in a commercial relationship, which is uh, a relationship of commutative justice, right? So that there's an exchange taking place as opposed to it's, you're almost like, if you think about it, like I did a documentary called Poverty Inc. Uh, for the Acton Institute many years ago, I directed it. And it's kind of like a foreign aid relationship, right? When you give somebody foreign aid, you're like, okay, here's the money. Now you're going to do all the things I'm going to tell you, or there's, there's contingencies. Well, the contingency of free stuff is we're going to take your data. And not only are we going to take your data, we're going to then use it to manipulate you, to sell you stuff and pop, perhaps give it to the government. And, and so, um, you know, that's the kind of, so, so anyway, I go through some of those things and some of the ways to think about technology and don't, you know, some people say, well, it's not very much different than the past. Like, no, it's totally different than the past. Uh, don't think of it that way. And then I kind of go into this, these eight practical steps, which I go through. Um, and you can, if, if listeners are interested, you can go to michaelmathsmiller.com and sign up for an update and I'll let you know when it comes out. It should be out pretty soon. Um, but uh, there's a, a, a it, I said, I think it's, it's new founding is starting a journal. Uh, I think it's called return. And it's about uh, living like human life in a digital age. That's their, their motto. And so they, so I was, they, we happened to just talk to each other and they said, Oh, well, we like what you're doing. And so they're, they're going to publish it. So, so it's, um, but, but then at the end, I talk about really the Tocqueville part and that is, and, and I think there's where there's a positive development in distributed ledger technology or blockchain, where we can in fact use smaller decentralized technology for us to create human centered and human sized organizations where like revitalizing mutual aid societies. And I'm going to talk about all these things later. So I won't jump ahead because I know we're going to talk about that, but I call the Tocqueville option of mutual aid societies. But one of the, the things I argue is that, that we can't build independent, functional, autonomous, decentralized organizations on centralized technology that's taking your data. Right. And that, you know, we have to stop thinking like every time we put something on the cloud, we're just putting it on somebody else's server. So the book is really about more on the technology side, but it actually has a whole section where I quote Tocqueville twice on associations and on soft despotism. So anyway, so yeah, so there's my, but there's my pitch for my book. I just now, um, I should, uh, this, this ad supported by ISI. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, we we can't wait to see the book. Um, we'll definitely have to get a copy here at the headquarters. What, what are you reading, James? Oh, oh goodness, yes. Well, well, right now I, I sort of have this exact same problem you have actually, um, with with like sort of getting distracted by a lot of things and not necessarily being studious, but sometimes being a little too curious. And um, 
I am sort of slowly um, working through Rusty's Bronson's The American Republic. Um, and that's kind of my main my main text right now. But, you know, bouncing around that is um, some Frank Meyer. Uh, I was reading some Nisbet when I was thinking about this podcast. And um, yeah, and going back and re- rereading some Tocqueville from college. And uh, and so there's all sorts of I just listened to Sarab Mari's book on audiobook, his new uh, his new his new book, um, which was, I think, good. But uh, I haven't read that yet. I need to get is I need, I need to get that on my list. What's the name of that book again? Uh, the Unbroken Thread. Unbroken Thread. Yeah, I gotta put that yeah, on. I thought it was good. There was a really good, a, a critical review, but I think a fair, like a, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like bombastic or bomb throwing or anything like this, but James Patterson did a review of it in Law and Liberty today. Oh, he did. Um, okay, yeah. I know James. Which is really good. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. Um, he's a friend of ISI. But uh, yeah, so so that's kind of where I'm at right now, really focusing on uh, on Bronson, but I also have, you know, all sorts of stuff floating in the background. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you would like to help us in that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourselves. And like I mentioned, if you have any questions, requests, or suggestions, feel free to email us at podcast at isi.org. So, Michael, let's start by talking a little bit about how we got Right now, we're going to talk about Nisbet. We're going to talk about the Tocqueville option, all that you know, good and wonderful stuff. But let's start by talking about how how we actually got to this particular moment in the conservative movement. You gave a talk um, at uh, the Philadelphia Society, the last Philadelphia Society meeting, sort of tracking how we got to this um, tension that we currently have in the conservative movement. Would you mind sort of giving us that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Thanks. So the Philadelphia Society this year, which is you know obviously a, a large conservative organization, there are a lot there are a lot of people there. And um, Sam Gregg, who's actually my colleague, colleague at the Acton Institute, he was the president this year. And he he the the pro, the the theme was a movement divided. Right. There's a conservative divide and all these things going on. And so there are a lot of panels about the conservative movement and how to think about it. So let me make a, a quick caveat uh, before I go forward. And that is like this is we're in a complex time. There's a lot of things going on. I mean, so I, this is a very short talk in a short podcast. So I don't, I don't think it's, uh, you know, exhaustive, but, but I suggested, uh, James, that there were five things that were going on, uh, that kind of brought us to where we are in this, in this movement divided. And I also think some of the divided movements, a good thing, by the way, I think we really need debate. I think there, I think we need to discuss really complex things. And, um, so I, I'm, I'm generally, um, happy about it. I do think that you use the word bombastic or bomb throwing. I think there's a little bit too much, uh, uh, maybe brand building and you know reductionism going on and but and maybe there's a more need for for actual discussion uh and so i, I but I, who knows maybe i'm guilty of that sometimes too so anyway we'll do our best but but um so here's here's what i'd say the first thing i think that led us to this um, it was just technological change, just the ease of publishing, right? I mean, we're doing this podcast. I have my own podcast. Um, think about this. I don't mean that that technology shapes everything, but um, you know, it's super easy to start a magazine, an online journal, right? Social media um, that just amplifies it. But I mean, like you know, get a couple people in a room. Next thing you know, you got a journal, a podcast, a nice website. You can do it in a week at a pretty low cost. So, so in the past, you were going to write in, you know, National Review or the Freeman or Human Events or New Criterion or First Things or whatever, Chronicles of the Paleo side. And now you can get stuff out like almost immediately. So I think that there were, there were muted voices that now are saying, 
what they want. And I think that there's just a lot, there's a lot more divide quote unquote in the conservative movement because there's a lot more voices talking about what they, what they think and what they want. Yeah. And that's not even to mention the ability to get your opinion out on Twitter, right? Which, which is not, not a full fledged article or anything, but very influential. Right. And I mean, there are people who've built good Twitter followers and, and, and that's, I think also part of the problem of the bombastic, right? Because so like Marshall McLuhan and all like talks about, you know, like how technology shapes us, right? And, and this is one thing I talk about in, in my little booklet, like code shapes us. It's not neutral. Well, <clears throat> well, using Twitter, it, it's a certain media, right? And that, that shapes the message, right? And, then, and so it encourages, it encourages kind of short, bombastic comments uh, to get play. Um, which is also another thing that's going on, I think, in the conservative movement. It's just like, so if that's, that's just the technology alone is influencing it. So that's the first. Uh, the second is uh, a position that not everybody agrees with, uh, but I argue that the conservative movement was always divided, right? That, you know, there's this kind of talk about, let's get the band back together. Um, but maybe the band was an illusion, Right. Uh, or, or I would argue probably more precisely a political coalition more than an intellectual one. Okay. So that I think it's always been diverse and varied, but that it's more divided today. One, because I just said technology Two, I think there was a, a, a breakdown of a clear opposition and three, because of political changes and cultural shifts. So, um, I think we're seeing a little bit of a clearer picture of what the diversity looks like now, whereas the diversity in the past was more muted or hidden. Didn't mean it wasn't there. It just means that you didn't see it as much because a, the technology and because the opposition, you were, you were in opposition, right? So if you think about like fusionism, and we can talk about that in more detail, but like just broadly fusionism, um, I would argue it was a political and electoral alliance against this shared opposition, right? So more than a coherent vision of the world, fusionism was this amalgamation of various groups that congealed together in an opposition. So you think about what's going on, okay, the Soviet Union, communism and fascism, um, the legacy of FDR, the New Deal, the Great Society, the large administrative state, right, that, that Nisbet's writing against, this kind of rational planning of society, this technocracy elements, Um. Uh, the sexual revolution, the cultural revolution, hippies, progressives, Keynesians, right? So this kind of alliance of like diff different factions of the left and then and then external uh, foreign threats and things. And so, you, you know, this, you have an alliance there. And I think the standard way that it's been described, people like George Nash documents this in his book, in the conservative, which ISI published or republished at least. That's right. Yeah, yeah. it's a great book. No, I, I think that's a great book. Uh, and George Nash is such a uh, a kind man. I've met him a couple times at Liberty Fund. He's just so kind. But he he describes it as this alliance between traditionalist, anti-communists, and, and and libertarian kind of free marketer types. Uh, but but Nash also, you know, he notes there's a lot more diversity, right? So. I mean, let's just think about what that does that conservative movement of fusionism looks like, just for like a couple things, right? So you had anti-communists and free marketers, you had limited government types, traditionalists, libertarians, classical liberals, evangelicals, conservative Catholics, conservative and Orthodox Jews, neocons of various stripes, right? So like Michael Novak is not the same kind of neocon as Bill Kristol, right? And we can talk about what a neocon is later. You had Straussians and East Coast Straussians and West Coast Straussians, right? Uh 
pro-life people. You had thinkers like Russell Kirk, Robert Nisbet, Eric Vogelin, Wilmore Kendall, um, uh, natural law Thomists, new natural lawyers, right? Fiscal conservatives, pro-business people, social conservatives, um, uh, people who are pro-globalization, protectionists, right? Pappy Cannon and, and this kind of nationalist element, which you're seeing now, right? That wasn't, it just was muted, right? And also the different times. Social liberals were part of the conservative movement, but they were kind of, you know, low taxes, but social liberals, uh, people who don't like environmental regulations, right? A sense of encroaching government. Um, but you also have um, a type of kind of or pro-organic conservative, a lot of Christians who are early on in this movement, um, you, had, uh, you know, Southerners, right? Pro-family people, people who like gun rights, people who are worried about the, the you know, sexual revolution. So you have all of these things, right, that were there. But they they kind of consolidated their efforts against this common foe of statism. So so but my so my argument is right that the band was always maybe an illusion. But once the opposition broke down, if that makes sense, or at least changed, so the alliance changed, right? So I will say one thing though before I maybe I go on. I do think um, a number of people have have argued this. Stephanie Slade argued this at Reason Magazine that there was a fusionist ethos or a fusionist group. And I do, I mean, I do think that there, that there indeed is slash was what you could call a kind of fusionism where you, where you have a combination of people who are, who believe in limited government, who believe in free competitive markets, who are generally, um, you know, pro-trade and who are traditionalists and anti-communists. Okay. But, but what I would argue is that that's, one group among many groups as the conservative movement. So that the fusionist ethos um, wasn't simply the thing, but a lot of, because a lot of prominent people had it that, oh, okay, well, that's what it was. So, so I, I want, I, I think it's important to make that distinction, right? That there is a fusionist ethos, but that that was one thing among that massive list I just put out. Yeah. And I think I would, I would add to that, that I think Part of the part of the point of her piece is to say, at least it seems to me, I haven't read it in a while, but I, when I read it, it seems to me that part of her point was that you can't really define fusionism as the three-legged stool. You have to define fusionism as a a sort of coherent political philosophy or political theory founded on the premise of uh, maintaining the tension between freedom and order. Yeah, that's that's yeah. I mean, again, I haven't. It was a while ago, so I I want. I don't want. I I wasn't. I don't know if I agree with everything she says in it when I read it. I mean, it was a long time ago, but my, but, but I do think there is a fusionist ethos. And I think there's also like a natural law element to that too. Right. 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 So, so for example, I would, I, I'm a generally a supporter of free competitive market economies. Okay. I also, um, am very, I talk about, write about ISI has published work I've done on cultural critiques of capitalism and that capitalism does in fact harm culture. It's not neutral. It has negatives and positives. So it's not as if like, oh, the market's neutral. I mean, I think it's both morally positive and has some, some real serious cultural and moral negatives as well. But, but anyway, so I think there's free competitive market economy um, is generally the, the best thing. I believe generally in limited government, but because I believe in the principle of subsidiarity, I think there's a place for government. I don't think government's a, 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 a say a, a necessary evil. I think it's a good, um, you know, James Madison says, what does he say? You know, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government, but Thomas Aquinas would say, oh yeah, no angels need government too. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. that there's that there. And, um, 
I'm anti-communist. Communists are bad. That's uh, evil regimes that killed hundreds, of, tens of millions of people. You should say tens of millions of people in the 20th century. It's wicked. And so, and, um, you know, I, and I, I'm, so I believe in limited government and, but I'm not a libertarian. So I guess I'm kind of a fusionist, um, in that sense, but it would be grounded in a type of say, maybe Thomistic influence and also just like American influence. I mean, you know, these things are complex. So, I mean, I guess, but, but I, there's probably disagreement among fusionists. Oh, absolutely. Right. Like fusionists who are like, okay, we're all fusionists. Then you get a fusion part and all they do is fight with each other. So, yeah. Well, yeah. And especially if you define it as broadly as, um, and you know, we're actually having Don Devine on for the next episode. So I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking about this quite a bit, but he, I think he's making the case for the, that there should be a band, right? It's a little like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm actually, I, I think we need more debate among the conservative movement. Yeah. I think he's happy. I think he's happy to have the debate, but I think he 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 wants to sort of define fusionism um, as like what I said, the tension between freedom and order. And he thinks that that I don't know, it's kind of hard to uh, hard to exactly describe, but I don't know if he necessarily he certainly thinks the band did exist. I don't know if he thinks that the band needs to get back together in the exact same way it used to exist. Yeah, I haven't looked at his book yet. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, look, I mean, here's I think this is a good time to think these these are these are complex things, right, James? I mean, like we're trying to all work out, like, you know, work out these things and we're trying to wrestle with complex in, uh, elements. And so, you know, I think uh, probably we need a lot of goodwill with one another. Uh, um, uh, so, so anyway, so, so I think like, so now I talked about that opposition. Well, as the opposition changed, the alliance changed. So I, I in one sense, there was a band, but I think it was a political electoral band, not an intellectual band, if that makes sense, right? Or theoretical one. So, okay, one, what are some of the changes? One, well, the conservative movement came to fruition. It wasn't a minority. I mean, you had Ronald Reagan, Bush 41, uh, Republican control of the House with over 40 years, you know? I mean, and this success created changes in the movement, Right. Conservatives were no longer in the opposition. And, and, and of course, despite small government rhetoric, they were actually expanding the size of government in many cases. Okay. Now you fast forward. I'm obviously I'm leaving tons out, but you fast forward to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And there's, in a sense, almost a vindication of conservative uh, critiques, uh, conservative critiques of managed economies that, that, in fact, communism was, in fact, not the future, but, but wicked. Uh, you know, and um, Michael Novak wrote a wonderful piece in 1994, uh, which was his Templeton address called Awakening from Nihilism, where he kind of lays out this three-legged school, stool of limited government and, um, um, and uh, free exchange, free economies, and a moral ecology, right? And how this idea is the, there. Um, and so there's this victory, right? And so, but that victory meant the opposition crumbled, right? The Soviet wasn't anymore. Keynesianism's on the back burner. Um, there was this enthusiasm for privatization, liberalization, and globalization. I mean, Clinton and Blair, right, were like new Democrats, new labor. Um, and they spoke positively of entrepreneurship and markets and business and right. And and Davos capitalism was cool. Okay. Now, I actually think this was a real problem uh, because well, I think we made an error there. Uh, I think conservatives, I think broadly, a lot of people made an error. Uh, and and like starting to figure it out, and we over time, but that you know Francis Fukuyama wrote like the end of history, and and this 
there's a sense, right? I mean, I, I, that's complex too, but I'm just saying there's this sense like, okay, capitalism has won the day. And a lot of people celebrated, oh, okay, markets won the day. But what I think we didn't see at the time, it's very clear now, but at the time, that in fact, we reduced socialism to its economic aspects. And so there's a sense, I think, of euphoria, like, oh, yeah, you know, we won and capitalism won out. But um, socialism is not primarily an economic idea. It's an anthropological idea. And anthropological socialism continued to grow throughout the West. So early people who saw this were Solzhenitsyn, of course. Augusto del Noche in 1989 said Marxism failed in the East because it realized itself in the West. Joseph Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI, said that relative, when the Soviet Union fell, relativism did not die, but combined with a desire for gratification to form a potent mix. Um, in 2007, I gave a lecture called The Victory of Socialism, with a question mark, 2007. And I, it was before the bailouts, right? And all this, the financial crisis. And, and I began to look like all these kind of social trends. And what struck me was Zapatero in Spain had a lower corporate tax rate than America. But Zapatero is a socialist. And it kind of struck me like socialists were using the economy to further their socialist goals. And I think a lot of conservatives, not everybody, I mean, you know, I mean, but a lot of us were just like kind of enthusiastic about the fact that, you know, new labor and new Democrat had come on our side. And then we formed this weird globalist ethos, right, of Davos capitalism, right? And, and, and um, so this, this was, I think, one really big, big problem. That I was, I think, a blindness. And I think some of what we're seeing now is as we, I think some of the critiques of the fusionist conservative victory, which I'll get to in a second, was, is that it, it missed this, right? And then there's frustration. So I'll, I'll maybe go back to that. But I think also then you saw like socially liberal pro-business conservatives, they were happy to join new Democrats, right? And then they adopt these kind of culturally fashionable progressive ideas. And we're seeing this alliance, you know, we saw it in the beginning with corporate social responsibility, but it's flourishing with this kind of woke capitalism idea. Um, and um, so anyway, th th I think that that air, but that error, right, of missing what actually was taking place shapes a little bit of where we are today, right? And so Carlo Ancelotti, do you know who he is? Okay, so he's the translator of Augusto del Noche. So uh, you can listen to him on Michael Matheson Miller's Moral Imagination podcast. All right. There we go. Um, I think I sent that to you. Didn't I send that to yeah. you? Yeah. Okay. I don't right. know if you sent that particular episode, but I've listened okay. to your podcast a few times. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, but anyway, so I interviewed uh, uh, Lancelotti on del Noche. And, you know, he describes, he like finally del Noche that, there was a shift in the 1950s taking place that the anti-communist rhetoric moved from kind of Christian anti-communism to this yuppie bourgeois capitalism. So he says, so Lancelotti says there's a shift from the Christian bourgeois to the pure bourgeois, right? This kind of yuppie, right? Where both progressives and conservatives appropriated Marxist categories. Right. So we're not going to beat you because the Soviet Union is evil and dehumanizing. Right. Like we're not using the language of John Paul II as much as we're using, we're going to beat you on productivity 
and liberation, including sexual liberation. So we appropriated these Marxist categories, right? And this, so this is part of the, the seeping in. So anyway, so as the opposition kind of morphed, this conservative alliance began to unravel. And then, you know, obviously Bush 43, the Iraq war, the resurgence of like kind of Buchanan conservative alliances, 2016 with Trump. I mean, all of your listeners know that better than I, but you got Trump versus the never Trumpers and, and all these things. But then I think other really deep divisions, right? So for example, debates about marriage with many libertarians who were part of that fusionist alliance, aligning with progressives and supporting the redefinition of marriage, which I argue that I did at the Philadelphia side and I argue uh, now uh, is that it's really fundamentally anti-libertarian, right? It, I mean, the redefinition of marriage, which is a biological and sociological reality, by the state is a totalitarian act. I mean, it's you're going to redefine biology and tell you that you must obey. And the same thing with the gender theory. So, so, so libertarian. So this is another break apart of the conservative fusionists, like libertarians, and not all of them, of course. I mean, there's different forms of libertarianism, right? So, I mean, we have to, like, again, I think, both of us, we, we probably, it's important to make this caveat. I mean, li some listeners are like, wait, you know, there's lots of, you're absolutely right. You know, I'm not totally being nuanced. It's just a podcast, right? <laughs> I, I get, I mean, my, my, but I think it's important to say that because, you know, there are libertarians who, who probably agree that it's a, that it's, it's a totally anti-libertarian move. But again, this, this creates a fragmentation. And then of course, increasing worries about globalization and the effects of free markets on urban areas. You know, um, Chris Arnotti um, writes about this in his book, Dignity. Um, and then, you know, conservatives debating on, should we be protectionists, have industrial policy, should we have the market? And then this also, which is another interesting thing, like a criticism of the American founding. Like most conservatives yeah, like yeah. the American founding and like people like Patanine and others like, no, it's, it's actually broken. Now, I mean, obviously it's not perfect, but I think the American founding, I don't think Patanine is correct in his, I like a lot of his book. And yeah. I think I told you, somebody said, Hey, will you write a, this is a different thing. Will you write a critique of one of Patanine's articles? And so I read the article. I was like, well, I agree with like 95% of it. Right. So, so, you know, I mean, it's like, but I do think he's, I think he's wrong on the founding. I think it's, 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 the, if you take, and I've actually written about this. I mean, if you look at the writings of the founding, it's not simply Lockean individualism. I mean, they're deeply influenced by scripture. They're deeply influenced by the practice, by the way, of 120 years of self-government that and social contract that exists in the new world in 1620, but it all throughout the medieval period. I mean, social contract didn't just pop out of Locke's mind. Okay. And, and so you, it was, but it wasn't the social contract of radical individuals. It was the social contracts or relationships of embodied, embedded individuals, persons, which is a very different thing. But then again, so, but I mean, I will say maybe, I guess the big deal of them is that what became clear is that we weren't in an economic battle or even a policy battle with the right and the left. We are in an anthropological struggle of what it means to be a human person. And so all of that starts to kind of play out and now we've got this fragmented conservative field. And so that's, I think, so that's the, that's the second, the, the other. Now, th two other things, three other things that are, I think are influential. One is I think we also got Hanitized. Now that's my thing for Sean Hannity as opposed <laughs> to hand sanitizer. Uh, you know, I mean, look, the conservative talk radio was an important development against, against this kind of monolithic, soft, liberal, progressive, you know, uh, almost state TV kind of thing. So you, you need, you needed that. Okay. 
and um and that was important but i think the 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 radio and the television and then of course social media as you brought out you know it started to exacerbate this movement towards sound bites and so that our narratives were just simply less false than the left well i mean that's a problem right and so it's not just radio hosts it's actually academics and and scholars and i think you brought that up with twitter so you know we can't like there's just like these less false ideas i mean like here's an example you know you'll hear people say well it wasn't the government it wasn't the government that got us the vaccine it was private enterprise well that's just not true i mean there was the, the government was involved in this i mean like i'm not pro government but it's just not true or like the free market and entrepreneurs invented the iphone you know the government didn't do it but as Mariana Mazzucato points out, you know, in her book, The Entrepreneurial State, um, like most of the things that make this smartphone smart were like developed by DARPA, right? And NASA, yeah. <laughs> you know, or this idea like, you know, if China gets the free market, it will become, you know, it will shed its communism. That's just false, right? You can have an authoritarian state and socialist state that uses some of the mechanisms of the market, Right. Um, but I also think, you know, on the on the other side, there's this kind of ignoring of trade-offs, right, uh, that go across the board uh, on, on the other side, across the board. So like free marketers, like globalization is going to benefit everybody. Um, well, some people take a hit for the team. And that's actually implicit in the deal. But then when we say, okay, now we got to re redistribute the gains, some conservatives are like, well, that's socialism. Well, not necessarily. It's just a redistribution of the gains that we knew. We're part, you're going to have aggregate growth, but you're going to have some people taking a hit for the team. But then other people are like, okay, well, let's just protect everything. Well, okay, if you protect everything, you know, you're going to have regulatory capture. And if you have regulatory capture, it means those people closest to the political process get special advantages. And as I talked about foreign aid, you know, I mean, I did this, this documentary I mentioned, you know, out of a billion dollars in federal, in, in, sorry, in government food aid. 70%, that's $700 million went to three companies, right? So th that's like, as if that's, if there's an industrial policy, I mean, we have to take a bit, look at opportunity costs. Okay. What are, what are we, what are we, we have to look at the knowledge problem, right? Now Hayek brings up, right? Now Hayek, I think was not a very good philosopher, but the knowledge problem is really important, right? I mean, like we just don't have tons of knowledge. We can't make decisions. So we have to, all those things, I'm not saying we shouldn't have an economic policy. Of course we have to have an economic policy, but I think this idea that we, like you, you're not going to just have an economic policy with industrial policy that doesn't also lead to cronyism, right? So anyway, I think there's just ignoring of, of trade-offs. Uh, and I think that that we can't just do sound bites. And I think that's another problem in the breakout on the conservative movement. So anyway, I have two more quick things that I think are important. And you can tell me what you think that's right. But why don't you jump in and tell me if you, what you think about my Hannitization point? You think that's wrong? No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, who wrote uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death? Who is that? Neil Postman. Neil Postman. He he sort of talks about a little bit what you were talking about earlier about uh, the medium changes the message. Yeah, that's Marshall McLuhan stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. So he talks story, about the postman does. Yeah, I'm using ourselves to death. Yep. Yeah, and I think that that's really true. I mean, it it becomes more fashionable to have a partial truth and not to have to do the complex work of hashing it out. Because if you do the complex work of hashing it out, you're not going to get the followers. You're not going to get the prestige. 
right? Because you are going to be sort of a stuffy academic who is um, boring to listen to or something like this. Right. Or go bald like I did. I mean, <laughs> I'm not, I'm neither scholarly nor popular. It's just a terrible place to be. <laughs> <laughs> Before we move on to our next question, I just wanted to give you a brief message from a friend of ISI, the Conservative Minds podcast. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? Where did the conservative movement come from, and where is it going? In a time of ideological realignment and uncertainty where social media sniping replaces measured discourse and debate, people are left to wonder, which values and ideas define American conservatism? On the Conservative Minds podcast, join Corey Astill and Kyle Salmon as they answer these questions and more by reading political authors from the past and present and discussing them in a fast-paced, free-flowing conversation. To listen, go to conservativeminds.fireside.fm or find it on your regular podcast provider. All right, let's get back to the interview. I, I think your work's great, and and I think it's you know it is important that we that we have the complex conversations because so this is something we we're going to talk about later, but I actually want to toss it in right now. One thing that really has struck me and frustrates me, and this this particular example is on the new right, but I think the fusionist right does this to the new right as well. We all do that to each other. It, yes, yes, exactly. But the the new right, I mean, I mean I'm guilty of it. Too. I'm guilty of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We all are. And but what, one of the examples is a new right person might say. You know, like if you are sort of stand up to defend free markets in some particular instance, they'll call you a free market fundamentalist or um, or something like this and and or a libertarian. Uh, and it's interesting to me that our definition of conservative or our definition of traditionalist has actually um, it, it now it fails to contain any sense of pro um, pro free exchange or pro free markets. Do you think so? Do you think it's that that? I mean, I think that's a, there's some people trying to make that case. I don't know if that's broadly the case. What do you think? I would say in, at least in the sort of young conservative circles that I work with, um, I, if someone sees themselves as a, what I would call a traditionalist, um, then they sort of really want to step back from the market, from the pro market side. Um, and they don't want to be identified with that side because it's according to them and in their sort of schema, to be pro-market is to be anti-tradition, which it just seems like, like you're saying, there's a lot of complexities there. Like, sure, yeah, in some ways the market can push us forward in a way that might be unhelpful, but are there, you know, structures and associations and, you know, things like this that can help to help the market operate morally? I mean, this is something Don Devine does talk about in his new book quite a bit, is this sort of, you need a moral foundation for the market. And I mean, it's it. There's a great phrase from Peter Lawler. He say, you know, libertarian means for non-libertarian ends, right? And that's because you undergird the libertarian means being, you know, free market exchange things like that with traditionalist moral structures. Um, but I don't know. What do you think about it? You think you think it's not that bad? The situation? No, not that no bad? I mean, I think no. I think I mean, no. I think you're right. I mean, I think that's a very strong and growing part within within the conservative movement, to be sure. I, I, yeah, I, for sure. I mean, so I, I, you brought up a lot of really important things. Let me try to just touch on a couple of them. So one, um, I mean, the free market fundamentalist position, it, when I see it around, I mean, let's say there are probably some free market fundamentalists. Okay. Yes, they certainly exist. <laughs> yeah. But like, there are not that many of them. And, and so- yeah, sure. I think that there's a free market fundamentalist thing. Okay, you're probably, you know, you think the market's going to solve every problem or whatever like that. 
But my, I work at the Acton Institute and I hear that we're a free market fundamentalists all the time. I, I, I learned so much about myself from Twitter. Uh, but anyway, the, the, but I mean, I would say, okay, well, what do you mean by a free market fundamentalist? So for example, let's say people believe in a strong industrial policy and they're really worried about the market. Okay. So what does that mean? Does that mean like if you and James, you and I decided we were going to start a business, we would have to like go get it signed off by the industrial czar? Is that what it means? No, I'm serious. It's like, I'm not being obnoxious. I'm serious. Like, so if we think about ease of doing business studies throughout the world and we look at them, right? And we look at correlations between say ease of business, and I'll go more into correlations. They're correlations, but ease of doing business study um, set up it, those places where it's very difficult to set up a business, right? People are excluded, especially poor people in middle class. So it's very hard. So for example, if you look at say, um, and I can give you the links for this and some of the, the graph if you're interested. But if you look at, say, poor, wealthy countries, so that are reasonably have markets, you have 65% or so of employment and GDP come out of what's called the small, medium enterprise or SME uh, section, sector of the economy. If you look at a poor economy and you look at a curve of that, there's lots of micro a couple of big ones and almost nothing in the middle. Why? Because they don't have private property and rule of law and free association, and it's hard to start a business. And so, so my question is, okay, one of the things I've noticed with the free market fundamentalist thing, and I'm happy to be corrected. Listen, if there's a listener who says, no, no, that's not what we mean. Okay, correct me. But I'll tell you at least how it comes across to me, right? If one makes says, well, you know, markets and a market or free, free market is good for certain things, Oh, you're a free market fundamentalist. Well, no, I didn't say it's good for everything, right? So, And so we have to ask ourselves, well, so there's commutative justice. I'll, I'll, I'll be a little bit complex for a second. So there's commutative justice and distributive justice, right? So commutative justice is the justice of exchange, and then distributive justice is, is this, uh, uh, we'll call it of just distribution. All right. So for example, so I'm, I am in the market buying things, and I'm in a, buying a pencil or a car or a computer. I should be in a commutative exchange relationship, which is a justice of, right? And there's the justice question there. So I, you know, there's going to be some asymmetry of knowledge, but that can't be exploited. And, you know, you can't rip people off because they're poor in a very difficult situation, or you can pay people who are really poor, uh, much un, way under the market price, et cetera. So Thomas Aquinas said, like, how do you determine a just price? So I think it's Aquinas and some of the other uh, uh, scholastics. And the, 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 so this is a summary, but that, it's um, utility, right? So how difficult, the utility of how useful is the thing. Difficulty in production, how hard does it produce? And then common estimation, which is a market. Okay, that's a just price. So that's how you kind of figure it out. So we have commutative justice. But I'm also the father of seven children, okay? Um, so, but I don't say to my children, like, you know what, I have a seven-year-old. Like, uh, okay, you want to eat? What do you owe me? Like with commutative justice. No, it's distributive justice, right? So there's a, dis there's a place for commutative justice and there's a place for distributive justice. So does that make me a market fundamentalist? Because I think some, some relationship should be done in the market. I mean, let me, let me take it further. Like Rerum Navarum, this is some Catholic stuff. So apologies to non-Catholic listeners. But um, Rerum Navarum is very famous encyclical by Leo the Thirteenth. Uh, where he 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 makes this very strong defense of private property and also very and wonderfully roots it in the family, which is I think really important. Uh, 
but he but he also talks about like the right of free association for unions. He's making the case for unions. And some of the work that he's using there is work of St. Thomas Aquinas from 1256 called Contra Impugnates, where Aquinas was defending the right of the mendicant orders, the Dominicans and Franciscans, to teach at the university against the bishops who were saying, you can't do that. And he says, no, you're usurping. Our, power, like our, our authority. So, so, and in this, it's like one of like, I think Russell Hittinger might say it's, I think he says it's like the first argument against monopoly rights. Right. But it's this argument for the right of free association. And he talks about like forming a business enterprise too, in this country. So if you think about what's free association, right. Free association is that comes from the nat from uh, the social nature of the person. So human beings are embodied, embedded, persons. We're personal subjects created in the image of God with reason and freedom and will, et cetera. And we, we're, we're, we have a social nature and we're embodied. Okay. So we have a natural right of free association. And Aquinas argues, and what? To come together for things which, are comp- which were competent and which benefit the common good. So a school, a charity, a hospital. Now you and I aren't physicians, so we can't start a hospital. Right? Why? Because we don't we don't have competence. So the competence doesn't come necessarily from the state. Says James and Michael have competence. That's not what that how works. But we're not physicians. We don't have competence to start a hospital. But we could start something else, right? Okay. So so we come together to 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 solve a problem. Well, what's business? And John Paul talks about this as well. It's a community of persons where people get together to meet their own needs by meeting the needs of others. Okay. Free ex- association. Okay. And then there's an element of free exchange. So, so I'm kind of jumping around here, but let me, let me maybe kind of wrap it, summarize it. What, so what is a, a free market fundamentalist? Is that someone who believes that every single uh, social problem should be solved by the markets? Okay. Right. I, it, that's a problem. Right. But if, but I noticed, like, I mean, I think that's totally wrong. It's just dumb. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, this one priest pointed out to me, I think it's Gary Becker, you know, who's like, look at your children and say, who's going to give you the most value? You know, maybe that's unfair to Gary Gary Becker, but you don't have, I don't like calculate my children's worth based on their utility. Okay. Uh, There's, we're not in a market relationship in our family. We're in a relationship of love and and distributive justice, right? Right. And, and then, and then all these other elements as well. Right. So, uh, that's a whole other podcast. So, but anyway, the, so, so what is a market? Well, a market is you have buyers and sellers get together. And then what enables long-term thinking of a market? Well, private property, clear title to land, rule of law, as opposed to rule of men, access to justice in the courts, Ability to register your business and participate in the formal economy without undue burden, right? So Hernando de Soto did a study in Peru. It took 289 days to register your business. Oh my goodness. Okay. And that's like a little sewing machine shop. He got four student (laughs) lawyers to go around. They spent like eight hours, no, six hours a day for 289 days. Like, okay. So that's what, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with reality here. Okay. We're looking at possible alternatives and then there's free exchange. So, uh, is the person who says there should be no market saying that you and I can't form a business without permission and engage in trade? Well, okay. Um, look at the look at the 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 sources of private property, rule of law, free association, free exchange in the West, right? So, first of all, if you see, see the, the Decalogue presupposes that private property you shall not steal. 
It's in Genesis 23 when Abraham talks about title to buy to you know to to uh, uh, buy a plot of land for his wife Sarah, right? Uh, in I think it's First uh, or Second Samuel uh, 12, second, for example, where David after the after the plague. Um, when David did the census and then there was a plague, he goes up onto the uh, to the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite and he says, uh, oh, and Arun is like, I'll give you the cattle. He's like, no, no, I want to buy it from you because I'm not going to offer sacrifice of something that's not mine. So private property is like deep in the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's in, in the New Testament, right? Of course, that's a misreading of Acts to think that, that Ananias and Sapphira died uh, because they had private property, right? That's just not not even close to close to the text. So it's really a deeply a part of the Christian tradition. Same thing with rule of law, right? Aquinas makes the thing between rule of law versus rule of men, right? Um, again, I've just already talked about free association, so I kind of um, I'm doing this uh, shorthand. But all these things make up a market economy. So my question, so so to say, I'm sorry that was long answer, but I'm saying like when we ask, and by the way, we're, they're traditional. Right, and where did the where did capitalism originate? Not in the Enlightenment, okay. It originated in the medieval period. So, like Robert Lopez in his book, The Commercial Revolution, eight hundred and twelve hundred, um, uh, eight hundred and thirteen hundred, and I and then um, uh, Henri Perrine writes about this. The uh, the wonderful book uh, by Harold Berman, uh, Law and Revolution, talks about all the developments of mercantile law, and um, you see, uh, for example, uh, I think it's Richard. Goldwaith, who's a scholar of medieval and Renaissance Florin, Florence, Johns Hopkins University Press says, look, Florence, by our standards, was a capitalist society at 1200. So the development of commercial society, banking, et cetera, comes out of the medieval period. A lot of it was the influence of like uh, internet Italian banks, uh, Jewish merchants and traders like Rashi. Um, and there's a, a whole tradition out of which this market comes, okay? So the idea that markets started in enlightenment, oh my goodness, I don't want the enlightenment or the bad. Like that doesn't, it's not traditional, okay? It's, and so even Burke was a free marketer and he said that, you know, that markets, because if you think about it, it's, it's there's a certain element of the democracy of the dead that Chesterton talks about, right? Like common estimation. Now look, James, markets aren't perfect. We can, I mean, we have a whole podcast on the errors of markets. I've given lectures on it. There are really a lot of problems that come with markets. They exacerbate a lot of bad behavior. But I think the question is, you know, when somebody says that, like, what do they mean? Like, do you, re you really want no markets? Well, of course not. Okay. Like, you, you want markets. What we want to say, I think, and you, you went to this, is that because we're embodied in bed in persons and because human flourishing is more than just utility or profit maximization, we have to, a market needs to be embedded in a broader moral ecology that takes, that, that is not simply, as Ratzinger says, relativism mixed with the desire for gratification, right? Not everything has a market value. And I think that that's what, that's a whole different thing. And so I completely agree with that. So I, I like, I like the fact, and you're talking about like you're kind of conservatives that are younger, like your age, are questioning these things. It's really important. But like take it seriously, right? Don't just kind of rebel and say, hey, it's fashionable to be non-market. I mean, what does that even mean? Right? I mean, and so anyway, that's a long, it's a super long answer to a a, a but a complex question. So I'll blame that's you. okay. I do want to, we got about 10, 10-ish, maybe a little more minutes left. I would love to talk a little bit about what you call the Tocqueville option and talk about Nisbet a little bit and think more deeply about sort of associations and how they might help get us out of this, um, 
this sort of the what we where we are now, right? You started with where we are now. Talk to me now about how you know sort of Burkean associationalism can get us out of it. All right. Can I do? Can I just? Can I just sneak one more thing in about how we got here? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll do it really fast. So in summary, sure. Um, so something I've been thinking about. I don't know if it's right or not. So maybe some listeners will be able to critique it, or you will. But I kind of got this insight from Del Noche. So Augusto Del Noche points out like the 1968 student protests were anti-traditional and anti-technocracy. Now that's not completely right because there was a whole counterculture that became influential in like Silicon Valley and the cyber culture. But there's just a broad movement, like, you know, we don't want big stuff. We want to kind of opt out, et cetera. And we, we don't like traditionalism, but these are incoherent things, right? Because like traditionalists should be wary of economists, sophists, and calculators and against this progressive state. So I think one of the things that happened to conservatives and I would say, okay, I would say this kind of happened to me a bit and I've changed over the last, you know, maybe 15 or so years. But I think early, the reaction to the student protest by conservatives made people traditionalist. You know, we don't want to hang out with all those hippies. But also because the hippies actually had, and Nisbet talks about this, there's a certain strain of Burkean kind of... Um, say organic farming and all these things that are like kind of opt out that cons- that conservatives are like, you know, these bunch of hippies. Right. And so conservatives reacting to the student protests, not only supported tradition tradition, but I think reactionarily, and this is not across the board, supported technocratic hyper-rationalist solutions, social engineering, Taylorite management, industrial farming, GMOs, big corporations. Right. But these would have been met by skepticism with, by Burke and by Nisbet by Kirk, by Dawson. And so there was this pro-business, anti-environmentalist element in the conservative movement, um, which is very different from the support of free exchange, commutative justice, and subsidiarity. And so I think the reason I bring that up is just because I think that's kind of like weaved in and that conservatives my age, because I, I would be a conservative, right? Um, I don't hold any fashionable opinions, so I guess that makes me a conservative. And conservatives your age, like we're trying to wrestle, like, wait, what do we think about, you know, organic farming? So I have a, a, a quick that story I always tell. I was like, you know, where do left-wing um, progressives, Obama, Clinton, Biden voters um, get together to find community? And the answer is free markets. At farmers markets, they love farmers markets. And what do conservatives think? Those hippies, right? So think about it. Like they're like reasonably unregulated market economies, right? So the thing is, the point is, so I think part of what this goes to this point of your question, like we have to wrestle with like, how do we think about agriculture, factory farming? Right. I mean, I think factory farming is morally problematic. We have to think about these things and wrestle with them. And so, and I think this is why there's, I'm really happy that there's this divided moment. And I just want the other point, I think that's really important, I think, which is connected to the rejection of the market and also the rejection of kind of fusionism by certain parts of the new right is look, we've had 70 years of the conservative movement. We had massive political victories. Okay. I mean, Reagan and Bush and Bush and, you know, uh, Trump and 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 we've had, you know, all this political activity, you know, um, but at the same time, 
we've lost the culture in almost everything. Family, marriage, education, transgenderism, woke capitalism. I mean, all, all this stuff. I mean, we're just, we're like, what do we do? Okay. And so, and I don't want to overstate this. There's a lot of good things going on. People are doing a lot of things, you know, schools and universities and, and organizations. But in one sense, we are in this position, of what Tocqueville calls soft despotism that I describe as big state, big culture, big tech, big education, big pharma. And this kind of Marxian categories of how to think about the world and utility. And we don't really live much different than anybody else, right? I mean, we think differently, but we don't necessarily live differently. And so I think that's, these are all kind of rooted now going to this, your question on Nisbet and Tocqueville. Like we are in an anthropological battle. We're that's the crisis of our time is anthropology. We have to take anthropology seriously. And so part of what I'm saying is, look, we need to be involved in politics and law and policy and, 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 and economics and go into the world and do things and whatever you're called to do, you know, go for it. But I also think that one area where we really need to build is we need to opt out of big government, big tech, big state, et cetera. And we need to, this is the Tocqueville option, really build functional, autonomous, decentralized associations so we have to ask ourselves, okay, we're outsourcing this to the state or to private corporations. Should instead we create innovative membership organizations where we're doing things together? How do we think about healthcare? How do we think about insurance? How do we create sodalities? How do we strengthen the family? And so Nisbet quotes Ortegi Gasset in his book, The Quest for Community. And he says, in order for something to work, it has to be functional, even the family, right? You can't just have, a, you don't just hang out together. You need to do something. And I think that's the big part of the Tocqueville option. I know we're kind of end close to the end of times, but, but I think, but I would say that I'm not neglecting other things, but that we have to really work on figuring ways to opt out and build these functional decentralized associations that are not necessarily the Opt. I mean, obviously the option, you know, kind of plays on the Benedict option. And uh, my friend, Kerry Grass wrote a book called the Marian option. So I said, well, I need my own option. So, uh, I mean, everybody's got to have their option, you know? Uh, so, but the, but the idea that Tocqueville says, you know, he looks at, he says in America, in the England, it's the, uh, I think he says, I think he says England's the magistrate, the local magistrate and in France, it's like the, the, King or something. I forget exactly what he said. But in America, it's always private associations that solve problems. And there's this rich tradition that's medieval, Christian, and American. So I think it applies to broadly Americans saying, we need to build, rebuild our own institutions. And so I say like, you know, is it wrong to take government money? Not intrinsically, but is it smart? Because then you kind of become an arm of the state. How do you opt out against some of these, uh, you know, forced equality things, which are not just forced equality, but they're actually forcing a new ontology of the person through law on people, right? And I mean, I can explain that if you want me to, but what I mean is in simple, we've redefined the person so that sexual predilection equals your being and that's who you are, okay? And that's deeply problematic. It's incoherent, but it's also, it's using dignity as a weapon against religious liberty. So we've got a lot of problems coming at us. Okay, yes, we need to be engaged in the in politics. So I'm, I want, I'm restating that because I'm not saying that we don't need to do that, but we need to build these functionally decentralized associations. And this also is where I think technology can play a role. We can't build, 
maybe I'm wrong, but this is what I think. And I'm happy to be corrected, but I, I, I doubt it. I don't see it. So somebody smarter than me can help. But we can't build functional decentralized associations that are independent and used hyper-centralized technology like Google. And this is where I think, and this is what I talk about a little bit in, in, at the end of this book, Digital Pandemic. This is where I think um, distributed ledger technology or blockchain can be helpful, right? So we can, we can, instead of it like being on somebody's server where you can just be shut down, you're on a decentralized platforms that you control, right? But I think, so that's kind of what I mean by like the Tocqueville option. And Nisbet, you know, this is really influenced by Nisbet. Nisbet influences me a lot in Tocqueville. Um, but that this idea of functional questions. So how do we get our healthcare? Well, our business provides the insurance. It's part of a major insurance company. And we go to like massive hospitals and, or, and we use the state. Okay, what if we stopped doing that? What if we started building uh, better mutual aid societies that are membership partnerships working with doctors and other people? What about, you know, insurance and disability? Um, even, even thinking about like, you know, uh, how we're getting our internet or whatever it might be. And what I mean by that is I don't simply mean, James, and, and like, let's start a new social media platform. I'm actually talking about something much richer. This is actually something I'm trying to work on with some people to figure out how to, how to even think about the technology behind this to encourage this. But like, ISI, what what technology are you on? Okay, Acton, what technology are we on? Like, where can we be shut off? Right? What are we? What? Wh where are these pressure points? And then there's a real question that we talked actually about at, at the ISI conference when I talked about this. Yeah. Book, so like, I, look, if we can't build these things, then we're in a political crisis because we've in a sense lost the ability of American associationalism, and now we're in a crisis. But have we tried? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I think these are all really great points. One thing that is coming to mind is, and I was reading this in Quest for Community this morning, but at the end, he sort of is talking about what the what a, a state looks like that supports associations right in the conclusion there. He has a little paragraph on it. Do you think that in order to do this, the state itself needs to change how it's operating in order to allow this? Or do you think that we can do this despite the state? That's a good question. I would say probably both. Okay. And I don't, I mean, like, I really don't know. So I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I'm saying, I think both. So I think, you know, I gave this lecture on, on a, a lecture on Nisbet years ago, which is also on my podcast. So you must do it. I just keep, I feel like I'm a marketer here. Um, <laughs> so, um, but, but I ask, I kind of say at the end, we're not in a perfect situation right now, but what can we do? We can start new schools right? Independent religious schools. We can homeschool, right? We can build a lots of kinds of associations. And so the question is, we don't want to look back 10 years from now and think, oh, we could have done it then, but we can't do it now. I think we, we need to try to build them now. Now, do I also think that there needs to be changes in the pol political order in the state? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Like I said, I mean, I think that the, um, so I think we're, we're having a real problem with, with writing into law, a new ontology of the person. It's in the Yogarta principles of the UN. It's in German law. It's in South African law. It's getting into US law um, that redefines the person based on their sexual predilection. So it's a plastic anthropological view of the person. And if you identify the being of the person, the ontology of the person with their sexual predilection, then that means that's who they are. 
And who you are is more important than what you hold. So then their quote unquote dignity as persons can't be um, uh, challenged or discriminated against by, say, deeply held religious beliefs. Okay. So if that gets deeply written into law, oh, yeah, we're in a big problem. Okay. And so what does the opt out look like? Maybe there isn't one. You know, but I would say like, you know, and I think the opt out, by the way, has to be very positive. So the way I think about it is, here's just one parallel example. So we're not in a siege mentality to run away. We're going to build way better institutions and organizations. So like think about, say, Orthodox Jews, right? Orthodox Jews don't leave society because they're like, well, I don't want to be contaminated. They like they want to fully embrace the Mosaic law and the Jewish life. And so they do it for a positive reason. And that's what I think we need to do. We need to build like better schools. So I'm on the board of a, of a, of a small Catholic school, which is growing actually it went from 60 people to 300 people in a couple of years uh, with the homeschool partners it's called Sacred Heart uh, Academy in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, doesn't take government money and it's growing and everything. And the idea wasn't like, let's run away from, you know, public schools. No, it's like they're bad. The government schools aren't very good. They're not doing anything good. They're not reading good text. They're not building. Let's build something that's good and and that's that's better and more efficient and all these things. And so the people who are, are doing it, uh, are it's a positive vision. And that's kind of what I'm, that's what I was inspired with Nisbet and also convicted was with that question. Like, well, am I, and I'm not saying I do this right, James. I, I'm talking about I need to do this too. Okay, so I, I don't please don't hear me saying like you need to do it and be like me. I I need to do it. I'm not doing it enough. Um, th- that's the question. Like, there's a tension. If we just wait until the politics al- are better, we're going to be waiting a long time. And I think, by the way, that's a critique of the new right that I like. Right? Like, look, come on. People aren't concerned. Like we have to stop waiting. Like let's just let let's just let this culture war go away, and we'll have low taxes. Like no, we it's not going away. It's not going away. It's just getting more intense and more intense. And Solzhenitsyn and Ratzinger and Del Noche warned us about it, and so we so we have to do about something about it, and we have to get into law and politics. But I also think we need to build these decentralized organizations based on decentralized technology so that we're independent because one little individual in a soft despotic state, like a Rousseauian detached individual doesn't have voice. Right. And so, um, we need, uh, we need voice. So what's the guy Hirschman has this, uh, and I'm not an expert on Hirschman, but Hirschman has this concept like exit voice and loyalty. So we need to exit big health, big education, right? Big pharma, big culture, big media, right? And also, how do we do that? I mean, one of the problems is like, how do you stop all this garbage coming to your, into your house, you know, and especially when you have teenagers. Uh, so, uh, you know, th- those are questions, but we have to exit those things and rebuild institutions in a very, in a, in a, in a way that gives us, that's the exit that gives us then voice so that we're not like one little individual People have options if they're feeling that they're, and I think, again, this goes back to the economy. We need to build, and you know, I know there's legal problems with this, but we need to build entrepreneurial um, ventures that solve problems that can hire people and bring people in and go. So I, so I mean, I, I don't think there's a perfect solution to all the problems that face us, but there's never a perfect solution. I mean, you know, this is the, the maybe here's the one thing I'll say at the end. One of my, kind of worries is that we, we we're becoming too ideological 
And what I mean by that is that that we're so Freud, Marx, and Darwin kind of shape the way we see the world. Like they have this theory of everything that explains it. Like Marx explains it this way, Freud his way, Darwin this way, and this is how it all works. And so we kind of think like we need our theory of everything. So Catholics, for example, right? I'm Catholic. Like, oh, Catholicism is the theory of everything. No, it isn't. Okay. So I don't think there's a single solution to the problems. I mean, there's no, what Vogelin says, immunitize the eschaton. You guys are making yeah, those yeah. stickers. I love oh, it. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got, I got two of them. I was like, there's a real sticker that says immunitize the eschaton. I always heard like somebody dorky had one and you guys made it. And now I get to oh, have yeah. one. So I'm That's so excited. Right. Absolutely. But anyway, so we can't immunitize the eschaton. We can't solve the problem. So I don't think there's a single, single solution. What do you think about the end of that Nisbet thing? Where do you think we stand? And where do you think, like conservatives that you know and that you engage with, what do you think they think? Am I too uh, Pollyannish? And by the way, I'm pretty pessimistic. So if that I'm, I'm Pollyannish, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think that there's a lot of there's. I I see too. As far as I want to talk, say about uh, institutions specifically, there are there's a camp of conservatives that thinks that we need to reclaim the old institutions, right? Especially when speaking about higher ed, like Harvard, et cetera. Do you think, do you think that's possible? No. Um, and <laughs> I don't, but some do. Um, and then there's a camp of conservatives that think that we need to start to found alternative institutions. My question is, like, as we might be able to sort of re, you know, we might be able to come together as a conservative movement in a helpful way. We might be able to carve out our space. Um, but if we want sort of the real, the good for America, we need institutions that are legitimate on both sides of the aisle. Um, and that is one of my worries with founding our own institutions. While they are good for ourselves and our souls, they might not always be um, good at sort of reaching out to the other side. I think yeah. they can be, no, but they might not always be. So, okay. So let me, let me ask you a question. Do you have time for me to ask you a question? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We do. Okay. We so can, like, what would, what would be an example? Because I think that's actually an important point. Like, that I think it's a good corrective to maybe and, and deepening to what I'm saying. So like, if I say we should just build these institutions, I, which I do think we have to do in w one sense, they're going to be exclusive. So there's a place where we can live, but we can't just simply create a parallel polis, right? And that's a uh, um, Vaslav Benda's term, a parallel polis. For the we have to maybe create it in the short run, but in the long run, we want to rejuvenate the country in which we live because we're localists, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so that's a good question. Um, what would you say would be an example of those institutions that we would want to make that are that we can't just have as our as our own in a sense, because that's where there's like an overlap at the Benedict option. You're just kind of like going out and restarting stuff. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's the type of institutions that are, um, that serve a, that are, how do I want to say this? So one of the problems we have right now is that everything has become political it's, and oh, politics totally. is it's a huge totalizing. Oh, yeah. And so problem. this makes it, because in, in a certain sense, you want to say, well, it should be the institutions that serve a purpose for a particular community. Okay, well, a school serves a particular purpose for a community. Yes, but schooling is now so highly politicized that that's actually not one of the ones that we can do this with. Right. So I think that in a sense, it needs to be, I think that there are certain 
commercial enterprises, local commercial enterprises. I think like the whole buy local movement um, is something that can do this, where I can draw communities together and can bring people from left and right into this legitimate space where they are friendly and can work together with farmers markets. Farmers markets. No, exactly. they really are. It's funny if you go to farmers markets, you like you know you'll see a lot of kind of people on the left shopping there, but not all the farmers are are are, are left. Oh right. no. And no. The other the other. Um, yeah, no, I think that's right. I think schools can be to a point, right? So a parochial school, like a Catholic school, can actually welcome people who are not Catholic. So you're welcome, but but they know what they're entering, right? You know, so I think, but I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think you're right also with like certain types of charities or or solving problems. You know, um, do you know who Balaji Srinivasan is? Okay, so he's a really interesting thinker. Um, I like his stuff. He's, I mean, you know, he's a transhumanist. I'm not a transhumanist. Okay. We have fundamental discrimination sort of thing, but he's really interesting. He's, he was the CTO of Coinbase and he's an entrepreneur and electrical engineer. He's like super, super smart. Great. I, I, it's definitely, I recommend you follow Balaji even just because he's worth, he's so interesting and worth listening to, even if you don't agree with him and everything. But, you know, he actually kind of made a point related to this where he says, you know, you almost create shadow societies. And and I think that's also partially what it might be by the institutions and making them better so that they're not just political institutions, right? Or religious institutions, but like, say, for example, let's say this, this is example he gave, let's say, you know, the state, the government, the local government just isn't solving problems. Well, create a voluntary association to solve those problems. And people from all over the right and the left want to be involved. And they, and then they want to be, and it's successful. And when it's successful there, people are working together and then we've built better solutions to problems. And then it also depoliticizes because we say, oh, well, we can get together and, and, and work on things. I, I think that your point there, and I think that, that I think is a, a good, let me say reminder, corrective addition to the point. Like I'm not, I'm not simply saying build your own political institutions but I think you're right. We have to build institutions that are that are pro, like social problem solvers, whether it's for profit or membership organizations. Um, but what that what but part of it is the broad opt out out of big state, big tech. And let's be honest, do you think do you think everybody who votes for the Democratic Party wants to be part of the soft despotic state of big tech? Like, no, certainly not. Yeah. In a sense, we have to offer alternatives that that are are welcoming. Yeah. So, and, and I would add to that, that, and I, I, we do need to wrap up here and I apologize. We could, you and I could just go for no, hours. I, I'm sure. Thanks. But, um, I, I mean, I, you, you asked me a question. And I think I took like 45 minutes to answer. It with all my <laughs> no problem. But w- one thing I would just add to that is that the part of the reason this is so important, especially at the very, very local level is because the actual process of solving the problem, right? You get, you say, Hey, we're going to start this institution to solve this problem. You get people from the left coming and saying, well, let's solve it this way. You get people from the right coming and saying, well, let's solve it this way. But the fact that they have to be embodied and embedded persons together in that space to solve that issue depoliticizes the situation. So it's, it's, it's serving multiple functions when you do that, I think. Well, it's very Tocquevillian too, right? So remember Tocqueville says like, he's worried about equality, and he's worried about pantheism, but he says that he's also really worried about individualism and centralization, remember? And that individualism and centralization actually feed off of one another, right? And this really influences Nisbet. And so 
what and and when you have too much individualism too much centralization you get in soft despotism where you have a multitude of people circling around themselves seeking after the petty and banal vulgar pleasures with which they glut their souls and above them stands the state right which regulates their industry divides their inheritances etc and they'd be like sheep breath out a shepherd he says there it's like a father but he doesn't want you to grow up so What's the solution to soft despotism or the obstacles to soft despotism? He says there are three, religion, local politics, and civil society. And it's interesting that you bring this out because so religion helps stop a love of comfort, which is a result of equality. So equality creates love of comfort, consumerism, think about that. And religion kind of helps kind of mitigate that through ascetic practices. And I'm going really fast. But then the the individualism is a turning into oneself into one's own people. I mean, like, you know, you're kind of your family and you kind of leave everything to the state by engaging in local politics and in civil associations and robust civil associations. It does exactly what you said. It brings people together. And so part of what I'm asking and thinking through, and I don't know the answer to this, James. I mean, like, I don't know. I have to think this through. And I think business corporations are, you know, it's good. We need businesses. Like, I think they're, they're part of the natural right association. They're a way we solve problems. But what I'm starting to try to articulate and, and need to work through is are we outsourcing too many of our human experiences needs for convenience to the state or to the market and that we need to rebuild civil associations that engage in social problems um, and revitalize local politics with this together and get away from this kind of hyper-centralized technocratic approach to everything. Uh, that seems to be kind of the part of the Tocqueville option. And I think that's going to take innovation, you know, and I'm not saying I have the answers to it all. I mean, I think that that's, but that's kind of the proposal. Like, let's pause and say, what things are part of our life, health, education, uh, insurance, uh, charity, et cetera. We can you start start going through them. Some, you know, somebody smarter than I. We list them all out and we say, what? Okay, what have we just kind of allowed the state to crowd out, which Tocqueville predicts, and the market to crowd out? Like we've 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 created a transactional relationship when it should be a non-transactional relationship or a different kind of relationship. So that I think that's what I'm thinking. But I think and I think that that aligns. Well, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That aligns well with your point, which I think is an important one to keep in mind. We don't just want radically separate institutions. I, I think that that's a great point. And, um, and I do, I, I think we're going to have to wrap it up here, but I just want to ask you our final question, which we ask all of our guests. I'm going to ask you to try to answer it in about a minute or maybe two. Um, and that question is, what is conservatism? Oh, golly. That's a good <laughs> question. That's a good question. So, I mean, I, again, this one, I won't do justice to it, but I would say there's, it's a conservatism is, uh, and I'll probably listen to this and think that was not a very good answer, but conservatism is first a realization and embracing of the fact that we are embodied, embedded persons, that we are subjects Will for our own sakes, we are personal subjects. We're not just radical individuals, and we have a social nature. Uh, what Norris Clark calls, uh, we are being substance in relationship. Right? I'd say that's the first. I would say that that it takes the body seriously, and it takes the uh, social reality seriously. Uh, second, 
um, I would say that it takes seriously tradition and the democracy of the dead. That we don't, because we don't just think, oh, you know, the, we don't have what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. That we take seriously the, the, the tradition. And that, that I sometimes say, you can summarize Burke by saying you can't just do stuff, right? That you, you have to like, you have to realize like the world is very complex. So three would be, we take, we, we take complexity seriously, Okay that the world is complex and interrelated and we just don't understand it all. Four, and this is not in any particular order, that we have a reverence for being. That we recognize, one, that being is good, that the world is intelligible, right? And that we have a reverence for being, okay? And that truth, and this is a Thomas's definition, truth is the conforming of our mind to reality. So the conservative doesn't think we can't, complete creation by participating with God to improve and innovate, but that we, we, we complete, we, sorry, we, we, we do that, but, but first we conform our mind to reality. Um, five, I guess I would say that we take seriously what uh, Michael Polanyi calls inarticulate rationality or what the tradition calls con natural knowing, right? That we understand that just because we can't say it and explain it doesn't mean it's not rational. And, and this relates to this deep problem with modernity where we have reduced reason to the empirical, right? This empiricist rationality, which is incoherent on its own terms because you can't demonstrate empirically. That's what it means. But it also takes away the fundamental elements of beauty, truth, goodness, right, wrong, friendship, love, compassion, and pushes them outside the realm of reason, right? And it leads to what Lewis calls the abolition of man. Um, and... So I, I would say, and then I think there was one other that came to my mind uh, that's, I think, important, um, that uh, if I'm losing what it was. But I think, th so those, I mean, that's, 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 I think, my, my very, there's probably more to add to that. And, um, but I would say that's, I think, what, what conservatism is. And that um, we, we have this, oh, that's what it is. We're non-utopian. Super important. That we're not, so that... Uh, we so like Ratzinger, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI says, you know, like, we must always strive for societies that are just, but we can only create relatively just societies, and every other eschatological promise only enslaves us. And so, I think to believe that you can't immunitize the eschaton is really a central part of what it means to be uh, a conservative as well, and so. Amidst the fact that we're subjects created in the image of God, and this is the this is the religious part, we're creative. We we are called to complete creation and invent things and make things and, and change and improve. But that it's always in reverence to being. We're not trying to create the new Tower of Babel, but rather we're trying to work within um, the within reality and within this within within like the biological and social realities. Um, and take seriously this tradition, et cetera. And so I think that's part of what, what it means to be, be conservative. Well, I think that that is a wonderful definition. Thank you. And before we go, um, is there, where can people follow you on Twitter, your website, et cetera? What, uh, let people know about that. Uh, so first of all, I'm a senior research fellow at the Acton Institute. So you can find me there at acton.org. I, I re referenced a, a film I directed in the, 
in the interview twice uh, called Poverty Inc., which you can also find at povertyinc.org. Um, I have a podcast. It's my own podcast called The Moral Imagination. So it's themoralimagination.com. And you can also find that on Apple uh, and Google and wherever else you, you um, listen to your podcast. And then uh, my website is michaelmathesonmiller.com. And I mentioned the new book coming out, The Digital Pandemic. Uh, it's, it's, I don't, it's not out yet, but if you go to um, michaelmathesonmiller.com, sign up for updates, um, I'll let you know when it's coming out. And I'm also on Twitter at Matheson Miller, which I don't do that much, but I'm, I'm there. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for joining us, Michael. And upcoming on Conservative Conversations, be on the lookout for episodes of Don Devine and Sarab Amari. And thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org resources to see all of the other things that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age articles, ISI books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we'll see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.